0: Nova Entertainment and Media Week presents In Her Own Words, a podcast series featuring interviews with a selection of interesting women in diverse media roles. The series looks at their stories of resilience, career highs and lows, and how they juggle the demands of life and people around them. I've always respected anybody who says, all right, I've got this opportunity. That's what really gets me going in life. I was different. I was definitely
1: different. It is absolutely life-changing. Women are very good at doing what we do.
0: In this episode, Media Week editor James Manning interviews Nova Entertainment CEO Cathy O'Connor, a dynamic and bold woman. With over 30 years in media, she's built a brand that is market-leading in innovation and focuses on the importance of people.
2: Cathy O'Connor, welcome to our uh, series of Nova Entertainment podcasts we're doing.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
2: Now, am I right in thinking you've just celebrated 15 years?
1: That's right. With the company? So who told you that? <laughs> you've done your homework. <laughs> yes, 15 years with Nova, so I've got a nice bunch of flowers, which was, which was nice. Normally people are saying, oh... Should we get someone else a bunch of flowers? So when I got my own, I thought it was nice because when you organise the flowers for other people, you realise that you often don't get them yourself. (laughs) But I got some, so there you go.
2: Does it feel like 15 years?
1: It absolutely (laughs) does not feel like 15 years. You know, when I started here, I had come from... stereo, another radio company, and it had been 12 years. And I remember thinking, wow, that's probably the longest I'm ever going to work anywhere. You know, I thought that was a long time. So, when it came 12 years here and now 15, and it's more important to the question, how how do you feel at 15? I feel fantastic. Like, there's just so much more to do. It's like wow, that's amazing. And then you sort of overlay that with a career where that's now over 30 years you go, well, how did that happen? (laughs) And um, it feels different. It doesn't feel like it did last year or the year before. And I think that defines the industry we're in, doesn't it? That everything is reset because things are changing so fast. And, you know, that doesn't allow you to sit back or if you did, you probably wouldn't keep pace with what's going on around you. So, and it's a fun industry that tends to make all the difference, I think, when you spend so much time at work to be able to have fun while you're doing it, I think is really important.
2: I mean, you've obviously achieved a lot in that 15 years. I mean, the the company was still in baby steps back then. A lot of the stations hadn't launched or some of them, but you, interesting to hear you say there's still so much more to do. Mm -hmm. Is that partly because of that sort of changing media landscape?
1: Well, I think it was an obvious remit when I joined the company because there was a network that needed to be built. And I joined when three of the five Novas had already launched and we were moving into Adelaide and then Brisbane. So I was involved with two of the Nova launches and both of the now Smooth FM launches. And, you know, that was really... I guess in the first early days of Nova you have five markets and they're all operating as individual stations because they're in startup mode and over the subsequent years you're bringing it together and you're starting to build a network and that requires national thinking not just sort of local thinking and you know that's obvious work and it's all about building and acquiring and as it was smooth particularly because it had a very checkered history Um, we spent a few years getting it wrong before we got it right so there was a lot of energy to get it wrong the first time and the second time (laughs) and so extra special amount of energy went into getting it right the third time so which um, we can look back on and be very proud of now, but didn't feel that great. I think there's a question coming up about one of my biggest challenges. But anyway, <laughs> um, so you know, it was all obviously new stuff that needed to be done. But when I say it feels new, and you know, there's things to be done now, it's still from a basis of building things because radio stations aren't what they used to be, and to remain successful and continue to grow, they need to be doing new things. doesn't mean you do less of the old things, but there's a much broader output and that requires new skills. It requires often new businesses, partnerships, and it requires leaders that can look ahead and pick out what the pathways are and then put people and process and sometimes investment behind it. So, it's certainly new to me. Most of the stuff I immerse myself in, I feel like I'm trying to understand it. There's no sense of autopilot in what I do because invariably it's radio, but it's radio and it's digital and it's data. And, you know, there are other forms of radio to contemplate, other companies, other forms of company, technology companies, different competitors. You know, there's no sense of it being sort of the same 15 years to me (laughs) at all. Even this month is different to the month before it.
2: Back in 2002, there weren't a lot of women in in managing director roles, in all, all industries I guess, but particularly maybe in media. In 2008, was it, you appointed CEO, weren't many women CEOs, hey, 15 years later, there's still not many. Are we making any progress?
1: It's a very big question uh, and lots and lots of uh, ways you need to answer it, I think. The data would say we're not making progress. I think that would vary in different industries and, you know, private sector, public sector and so forth. But if we just look at media as the landscape and if we look at broadcast media as the landscape, we're not making progress. And there are many, many things I think that play into that. I'm an optimist as a DNA. I'm an optimist. I've always thought you can only do what you can do from where you sit and if that means from my perspective that I'm a good example of building belief that women can have wonderful careers if I preside over a company where the policies support women to have careers and there's mentoring and programs in place to ensure that we continue to build that capability and that support then that's what I do. And then externally, if I can show up to forums, speak where I can, support others, mentor others, then that's what I'll do as well. I'd like to say the industry is changing and there are many people that work for Nova Entertainment who don't know a world without a female CEO. So I do think that over time, with the right structures and the right policies and programs in place, that the numbers can and will build. But, you know, there is certainly something that, happens around that sort of period of time where women are contemplating families and things in their career where it does get a little harder. And many women opt out. Many women opt out for to be self-employed or to be contractors. And, you know, I think that the, the big executive jobs that take a lot of time and effort and hours, you know, they're seen as less appealing. So, I mean, I think that that really means that companies and boards and male executives in particular need to change their view of what work looks like and be prepared to really judge their staff around output, productivity, not presence. And of course, technology is making that far more capable. But I also think too, company culture is a real factor in holding on and retaining women. And I think the boys club type cultures can present challenges to women who don't sometimes get included in some of the rituals around male entertainment and male networks, you know, and really the only way to combat all of these sorts of forces which play into the complex issue that you've raised is to raise the awareness of it. And I do sometimes, even in our own company, observe unconscious bias toward women. You know, a woman that argues is often seen as a problem, whereas a man that argues is seen as, you know, committed or focused, (laughs) often when women have children companies believe they're being supportive by saying she probably didn't want that opportunity she's got the family to focus on now well perhaps it's better if the woman tells the company she doesn't want that opportunity not the company assuming she doesn't want that opportunity and just those thought patterns which are often coming from a supportive place and often men with their own families and and their own wives that work but they don't see the way that they start to treat women differently through their thought processes and that sort of bias is endemic in Australian culture and it is something that business needs to bring to the forefront and it needs leaders that are prepared to call it when they see it and there are lots of organisations like CEW, Chief Executive Women for example, who have a lot of resources and a lot of material in place to help chief executives navigate bias within their businesses and the companies that do that and do it well tend to have better stats.
2: Do you think there's a lot more women in maybe working through the ranks in middle management and things like that? So maybe in a few years we will see more women at the top of the tree?
1: I think that women have been in middle management for a long (laughs) time and they're not necessarily breaking through. So even, even though I said, look, I think, you know, in my daughter's generation it may look different, the pace of correction where we have more equal representation at senior levels is not there. So that might just be blind optimism. I think we need to ensure that companies have got the programs in place and the people in place that can monitor and deal with bias toward women.
2: People sometimes talk about things like quotas and stuff like that. Could that help? Or do you think it's just more of a mindset that people need to get into?
1: I've sort of heard this debate over the years. I think you still have to employ on the basis of merit. It needs to be, you know, it's a competitive industry and you need to have the best people. And the cost of not having the best people will be pretty dire in a, in radio, which is essentially a people-based business. And invariably, if I look back on my career at the mistakes that I or my company might have made, it's about not having the right people in the right chairs. So I do think that appointments on the basis of merit are essential. But there is no reason why women should not be equal candidates because they, you know, they're half the population, they're more of the graduate population than the smart cookies. So I don't sort of subscribe to quotas. I think there are other issues. I think a quota feels that it might be a bit counterproductive to that Mm. principle of having the best people in the right place. And, you know, I'm looking for a senior appointment at the moment and I would dearly love for it to be a woman. I can't find all the candidates are male. I think there was probably eight to one and it's in the sort of digital space. And I sort of lament that and think, you know, that perhaps that's an issue. And we hear a lot about women in STEM careers as well. You know, I think that uh, the remedies to bringing more women through the digital and STEM ranks for other industries, and radio will increasingly need good technology people, is really at university and school level. You know, those remedies are, you know, far earlier than when you get to the executive appointment that I'm trying to make right now.
2: Sure. Sure. From what you're saying, the challenges you face are one of the things that keep you motivated. Are there other things that, do mean, is it being in the one role for a long time, do you have days or weeks where it's a bit harder to be positive or have that motivation?
1: Uh, No, no more than the average human being. Some days you might feel a bit (laughs) tired or, you know, you had a big weekend. I sort of have a high level of ownership around my own reality. So, uh, you know, the onus is on me, particularly as a CEO, to find the inspiration and to find the motivation. And I don't have a problem doing that because I am one of these people that lives out ahead. I don't ever sit back. I'm a, I like new things and I like forward momentum. And if it's not there, I'll find it. Same way, I like competition. So I, I'm good at framing and reframing the job that I do and the year that I'm entering into. So that sort of comes naturally to me. It's one of the reasons why I like sporting things. I like exercise and I contests of any kind so you'll find one you know and if you're coming into an industry it's always a contest.
2: Nova Entertainment is a very strong brand when you look around the media landscape maybe particularly in radio it's a brand that really stands for something maybe more than any of the others. Have you had to fit the Nova brand and do you expect employees to as well as well as maybe keeping their individuality?
1: When I joined the company it was a different brand Hmm. it was DMG Radio and Nova was its principal asset. Well, it became its principal asset. It had a lot of regional stations in those days. And Nova Entertainment was actually launched only a handful of years ago once we had built the sort of Nova and Smooth businesses on their current trajectory. So, you know, I hear a lot about brand. Brand is you know, a little bit of your core products do come out in your employee or your corporate brand, but we do quite a bit of work with our staff around what it is that's important to them in their employer. And we do know that brand reputation is one of the key drivers of staff engagement. So, it's a really important thing. And so, we do want to bring the sort of elements of the consumer brand into the company, but we also build, as do most companies, a set of attributes around the sort of company we are the policies we have the benefits we have and the things that we stand for so the principles that underpin how we operate we like challenging you know we are challenges is one of our principles we like celebrating success we don't like mediocre we're always trying to elevate and improve and that sort of forward momentum is very much part so i think that that brand I said earlier, that was my DNA as a person. I kind of suit the company brand as well. So we probably attract people that like that environment or those that really do like sitting back in, you know, a steady, secure or slower environment perhaps might select out or don't find it as uh, rewarding as we do. So I do think that staff that have longevity at a business tend to suit the corporate culture and vice versa.
2: How do you balance your own personal goals you've got in life um, as well as your your business challenges?
1: So I have sort of worked my entire life. I never took a career break of any kind. I had two lots of maternity leave and I've worked my whole life. So really the corporate goals and my personal goals have always been the same, <laughs> you know, and then I sort of have probably interests around the side. I like fitness and I like travel and all those sorts of things you do when you can. But essentially my identity is as a worker And I like that and I like being that. And so that's possibly one of the reasons why I'm still doing that at the level that I am because I set my goals through the lens that I see. And that is, you know, as a leader of a fantastic business in a great industry and feels pretty effortless to keep doing that. The minute that it doesn't, I probably look to do something else.
2: Some of the key executives on your team spend a lot of time building big personalities, with that comes big egos. Does that ever make it hard, you know, to manage? I mean, because you build a brand and a person and a, a program, can it take on a life of its own? That's-
1: yeah, I'm um- Asked a lot about personalities and I think, you know, the image of the on-air personality being the big girl or guy that calls the shots. We understand that sort of perception. I've worked with lots of them, many of them, most of them (laughs) over the years. I think like everything, that whole question of uh, are difficult people born or are they bred? And I I do think that it's a bit of both. You know, I've found very, very difficult people in not so successful positions and delightful people at the height of success in our industry and there's no one sort of prototype I think but my philosophy has always been that there has to be a base relationship there uh, with everything and it's not dissimilar to bringing children you get the bad behavior when there are no limits when people get yeses all the time or they're indulged or they're never really given that sort of right conversation there are hardly any performers I've ever worked with who don't see that there's a mutual or reciprocal dynamic to a relationship. Very, very few that say, I see what you need, but I don't care. (laughs) You know, very, very few. And I wouldn't always believe the personas that are paraded out in the media either. They're pretty reasonable people. And ultimately, I'm a fan of what they do. So I don't think you get performance without an element of ego. And with that comes people that, yeah, they're not pushovers and they do speak their minds, but then neither am I and so do I. (laughs) So, So, I find that honest conversations, not avoiding... The real conversations, which can happen, particularly the more successful presenters get. But this could be the same of a top sales executive or an executive anywhere in the business. They tend to be revered and left alone if they're performing. And without that sort of contact and that calibration of where do you sit and where do we sit, you can get problems. But I'd like to think that we don't make those mistakes. But I can see how they do happen.
2: Media is sometimes called a cutthroat industry, certain amount of ruthlessness maybe. Um, is it any worse than any other sectors? Or was it just get the spotlight shone on it maybe a bit more?
1: Yeah, I think we do live under the scrutiny of media attention. Media loves to write about media. <laughs> you <laughs> only got to look at you know, how many column inches were put to media reform last year and that'll continue this year, I'm sure. So I think it's very competitive and it's visibly competitive. So that's probably where the cutthroat tag gets. But there are wonderfully professional people working in the media industry and they're really lots of talent. And, you know, for that reason, the jobs are hard to come by. It's not an industry that has the luxury of just being able to employ people because they want to. You know, every job is tightly held and it's hard to sort of break in. And we see that with a lot of, you know, young graduates, it's hard to break in. So the stakes are pretty high. Uh, when you're in the media, you want, you've got a great job, you want to hold on to it and others want it. So I think that's where the cutthroat sort of persona comes in, but probably because we have, you know, more public interest in us because we have this sort of front consumer facing product. I think that's probably why. It gets that tag, but I would imagine mm. that the highest stakes in any industry, there's a level of competition, and you know that ensues.
2: That scrutiny, does it ever make it harder to make a tough decision? Do you think about, you know, how it might be received or?
1: No, because I think you've always got to be making, in my role, I make business decisions and sometimes they're popular and sometimes they're not popular. So, you know, when you, you know, you may be making a decision around the business that is unpopular with your staff, that invariably gets out into the trade media and then either disaffected staff or competitors start to comment on it and none of that really, it never surprises me and it never derails me because it is part of the industry that we're in and I think there'd be similar examples of that in most other sectors. In the end, you always remind yourself that you make business decisions do what's right for the business and what's right for the business is often unpopular with the people but right for the people as well. I think it comes with experience, you know, confidence to know that you will get through those sort of tougher times when some of the work you do is hard and equally there's lots of rewards when you do that sort of work and you do make the right decisions. I think if I look at our own staff, they do see that the leadership of the company in their view makes good business decisions. doesn't mean they're always popular but they do trust that we make good business decisions and we actually ask that every year and it does seem to be the common belief.
2: Best decision you ever made for your career?
1: Launching Smooth FM. And mm. yeah that would that would be I think that's the one I'm most proud of. It's probably the best decision is around my era as CEO and assembling the exec team that I have. So there's probably six or seven decisions in that, five or six decisions. And I do absolutely lay our current success at the feet of an outstanding executive team that, that I'm proud to be a part of. These are really, really great people who are really good at what they do. And so, you know, together we have reauthored the Nova brand, including things like Red Room. We've come up with the smooth proposition, and I think it was some of the people I, I hired were atypical for Australian radio companies, people like Paul Jackson who is a disruptor and uh, wasn't from Australia. I had a lot of people telling me that people that weren't Australian couldn't build Australian radio stations and I thought that's good because the Australians that have built these two FM stations in Sydney, Melbourne, (laughs) haven't been able to do it in a way that works, so I may as well go to the edges, and it'll be our greatest success or my greatest failure. So, and of course, it's nice telling the story, because history says it was the right decision, and I went and found a male in his early 40s that liked the carpenters, and uh, there weren't too many of those in Australia, (laughs) certainly none in Australian radio anyway.
2: Well, they didn't want to admit it. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's right.
2: And uh, I'm guessing maybe it was your biggest challenge linked to that success?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I've told this story a lot before, so it might be some people that have heard me. Oh, here she comes with the Vega story again. But of course, you know, the, uh, the first go at launching 95.3 and 91.5 FM in Sydney and Melbourne was Vega and... I was a very active member of the team that delivered that and there's so many lessons in that. I wonder if it had been given time and the investment to keep going, how it would be going today. It may well be doing better than some stations on the FM mm-hmm. band, but it wasn't. Uh, there was no business case to sustain that it at the time, certainly not with the shareholders that we had. And I think Smooth was a, a slightly disruptor in itself. Its model is very different to Nova, for example. It doesn't rely on the, the same sort of shows and the same content that Nova does, both either digitally or or on the air. So it's a different model and a very successful model because it still manages to drive leading ratings off different structural sort of setup. So, yes, the Vega piece, I think it was overconfidence. It's a classic case of 101 marketing, which was, um, if you couldn't explain what it was to yourself, you could, probably couldn't to a listener or an advertiser <laughs> or a journalist, and we struggled to do all of that. So, yeah, I mean, it's there in the history books as a lesson in so many things, over-interpreting research and perhaps overconfidence because Nova had been so successful. And then ownership, like who actually if anyone in the group thought it wasn't quite right, you know, who actually owned the output in the end? And and anyway, it, uh, it wasn't a commercial success and therefore it needed to be rethought and it was rethought. My boss at the time when I was in my former role said to me that it was the best thing that ever happened to me because, uh, you know, failure is, it was all going too well up until that. <laughs> point <laughs> um, so I think he was right I think he was right he said you've got to sit with a bit of failure and learn from it so what I observed at the other you know as we came to build smooth I was different I was definitely different as an executive I had I was had more courage and I trusted my instincts more and that led to some unpopular interactions with my new team. Uh, I know that it wasn't the original idea for the name. There was a bit of a dust up over the name and I I got a bit more selfish and we were highly accountable to our board because this had been an expensive and unsuccessful initiative and it needed to be fixed. So there were a lot of things that brought (laughs) CAF 2.0 to that launch and it was a great piece of work. I'm still very proud of it.
2: Yeah. Kathy, who do you look to for inspiration and do you sometimes find it maybe in the not different places or? Yeah, so I, I,
1: I'm easily sucked in <laughs> to <the> things. <laughs> you know, I find inspiration from all over the place. I find it, you know, you read a lot, particularly the way that media consumption works these days. Things are flying at you left, right and centre. And, you know, there's books to read, there's websites to read, there's content to look at and your social feeds are throwing things at you left, right and centre. So it comes from everywhere. And often those sort of stories of human triumph are things that really make me excited. I feel very fortunate when things happen in the world that are sad or are hard. It's always a cause to reflect on how fortunate you are to do what you do, to still have your health and to, you know, live in the country that we do. I mean, I, I think I am easily inspired. <laughs> so I don't know there's any one source, but I, I think I'm you know, as I said, I've got a sort of forward momentum just naturally as a person and I'm a an optimistic person. So most things can, you know, fuel that
2: millennials, you employ a lot of millennials at NOVA, they seem to be sort of very career-oriented and maybe often looking for the next advancement or the next opportunities. Is that a challenge for employers, do you think, any more than maybe it has been for other generations?
1: No, look, I think having enough, there's certainly millennials, they want to be involved. They like experiences and they want to be involved. So, you know, the old sort of hierarchical leadership structure doesn't work in that environment. There's a lot of talent in the business. And of course, when you've got young brands like Nova, it's fantastic. You just need to be organized enough to tap into it. So, you know, there are lots of different ways that you can engage and tap that potential. The trickier thing is when they all want promotions. I think but a millennial that's stimulated, that feels they can have a say, they don't have to call the shots, they just want to have a say. Lots of ways that companies can support and tap into that. And, you know, it just involves being pretty organized around setting your forums off site that we can get into think tanks and lots and lots of things like that go on in our business, as they would with anyone that employs a lot of these people. And also because they want to live life to the full, they, they are happy to sort of move around from job to job. And I think our view of that is, you know, you always want to be able to retain millennials, but if they want to go off and wander and learn and experience, then make sure they come back. Mm. And, you know, I think traditionally just jobs for life may not be consistent with how the average 20-year-old's thinking, and that's okay. We want to get as much of them as we can for as long as we can. Having said that, I think our staff attrition is pretty low by industry standards, so we do tend to hang on to people. But yeah, if we sat back and didn't give them a say, I think they wouldn't be around for long.
2: And as you allude to, some that got away, you get them back anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Go and build an orphanage, and you know, live on a commune, and come back. Oh. And yeah, we've got cases of that as
2: well. Let's finish up our chat. I might ask you about when people come to you, younger people in the company, for advice. You know, career insights, things like that. Are there are there things that you can impart given your Your history, your experience, that sort of messages that you find useful to give them?
1: Yeah, I find myself giving this advice often and that's just play the longer game. I think in this sort of era of instant gratification, people want things now. Not every decision, you know, whether it's a career progression decision or a, a work opportunity decision, not everything goes your way all the time, but play the longer game and try and understand, particularly if it's a work thing, try and understand where the leadership's coming from. And the more you understand that, the better off you'll be because you'll be able to anticipate what they need and focus more on your contribution to it rather than trying to guess around the edges. So that's obviously something. And, and also just understanding that... You go through good and bad sort of stages in careers, good phases and bad phases, and again, the bad stuff will pass and the good times will roll again. And, you know, they're they're the sorts of things, invariably, when people ask for my help, they're in trouble or they didn't get a job they wanted. And also, too, particularly mentoring young women, I'd say don't, cheat yourself out of any time to enjoy your family and you're not letting the team down you take the time you need I often find myself telling people to take more time than they're prepared to Oh will only I'll be back in six months I just want you it's like well maybe don't make that decision because you do see over the stage of a career you know that particularly when women have young children very young children it's such a small part of a career so you know I'd probably advise people to not be as hard on themselves as I was on myself even though I didn't, nothing bad happened to me in the end. But, yeah, I could have been nicer to myself. <laughs> Never took a career break. You know, four months maternity leave, back into the job. Uh,
2: yeah, that's all a bit rough, you, isn't it? Are you nicer to yourself these days?
1: Um, mm. Yeah, look, I, I think I'll always be telling myself, here's just a little bit more you can be doing there. <laughs> I don't think that voice ever turns off. But, uh, you know, I'm happy. I'm very fulfilled professionally and I'm proud of what we've got here. And uh, And I'm really excited about how radio is going you know when you've been in something your entire career it becomes part of you and to see radio doing so well and radio businesses still getting good investment and they're very tightly held assets you can't get your hands on any of them and there's a reason for that it's the work of many many good people over many decades and yeah that
2: makes me happy kathy o'connor great talking to you thanks james thank you
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of In Her Own Words. To hear more episodes from Inspirational Women as part of this podcast series, subscribe at Apple Podcasts, listen at novaentertainment.com.au or wherever you get your podcasts.